0: Welcome to Let's Talk Ideas. I'm Paul Taylor, and this is a podcast where you'll find us looking outside the world of Bromford and discussing big ideas with fascinating people. I'm joined for this episode by John Wade and, as ever, by producer Katie. Hi, John. Hi. We're delighted to be joined by Kate Davies, CBE, no less. Kate was, until 2023, the chief executive of Notting Hill Genesis, a large London-based housing association that at the time was building about 1,700 new homes a year. Kate now has a new project as MD of Buena. Buena is a Spanish word, feminine abuno, which means good, kind, nice, okay, fine, attractive, and hello. Kate has just launched the first white paper from a new venture, Social Housing, Radical Reform Through Better Collaboration, Interdependent Working, and Technological Innovation. And we're going to dig into that in a little bit of detail, but we're going to get to know a little bit about Kate generally as well. So we might away from the report and circle back on it so when a case am i pronouncing that correctly
1: well it's it's buena but it's pretty good what you said and it's like there's a chocolate bar called bueno which you might know and is the feminine of that um I, and i was really pleased to get it because you set up a new company and you know the number of words people are spelling incorrectly to sort of get something across. So to be able to use an existing Spanish word that most people, English people will work out what that means and it's nice and short and it's positive and it's feminine. So I was thrilled to be able to get it. Yeah, it was uh, exciting for me.
0: Fantastic. Okay. So um, before we get into it, can you just start off by letting listeners know who you are, what your path has been through life, leading up to your new project?
1: Mm -hmm. So in a way, for me, housing was a second career. I was already in my thirties with three young children when I accidentally fell into it. Before that, I was working in family planning in the health service and previously I'd worked in publishing and uh, sales, all all sorts of weird stuff. I hadn't really had a career path because I hadn't thought I needed needed one. But eventually uh, I ended up in housing and I thought this is a chance to have a career and have something that I can be proud of and qualify in and begin to contribute across everything. So, as I say, in my mid thirties, I started working for a supported housing association uh, that looked to people with mental health issues. And then um, that was in the development department. And then I kind of branched out to work for other housing associations. And I went from development into management. And then having done both development and management into senior management and I worked for councils as well. I worked in in London, in a South London borough, and I worked for Brighton and Hove Council when it became a unitary authority. So I had some interesting experiences and for me, it's been an absolutely wonderful place to work. The issues you're dealing with are fundamental to everybody's lives. The variety of work is fascinating. The type of people that you work with, tenants, board members, staff members are you know, 99.9% decent people that you have an affinity with. And I have enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, for me, although it's a social purpose that's highly motivating, I've also enjoyed making money for housing associations. I like the commercial side because if you can make money, then you can do a lot more good. And a social enterprise has been, to me, a fascinating projects, you know, the the big a big social enterprise, not a small charity, uh, you know, almost a billion pound turnover at Notting Hill. You know, that was um that's a big business and you throw off a lot of profits that then can be invested in social purpose, which is, you know, what a privilege.
0: Fantastic. It's interesting you say that about housing because as you say, you know, and we know well, you know, well, we hopefully got an audience of this beyond housing, but you're essentially dealing with life, aren't you? You know you're dealing with all aspects, every kind of nuance of kind of human existence, and all the problems and opportunities that throws up, and we tend to kind of undersell it by just kind of focusing on the housing part at times.
1: I totally agree. Totally agree. Family life, you know, people are with us for a long time. They might come in as a young couple or someone with small kids, and we could have them in our housing when they're elderly with dementia, you know, it, it's a lifetime relationship. It's not transactional. You know, we we live alongside the, the customer base and we, you know, it's not just their home, it's their neighbors, their neighborhood, their community, their life chances, what good housing enables them to achieve. It's their health, it's their, yeah, it, it, it impinges on all of us. And, and many of us who are well housed and, you know, not desperately poor you know we sort of take it for granted but when you are homeless or desperately poor the housing situation becomes a massive barrier to the rest of your life you know it is truly life-changing what we can do for people and uh yeah and i say not just the home think about the air area and, and what where you live affects everything you know i
2: remember ten uh, ten 10 10 or more years ago when we were sort of doing a bit of Asking ourselves why we're here. What are we here for? Um, you know, we were contrasting we're we're not a persimmon. We're not a David Wilson Holmes, Well, why not? What's different about us? And that was a good way into us really reigniting our sense of purpose. I think Paul and I've been around a while. Um, anyone who could see this would know, um. So we, we we spot lots of people who've been chief execs of of, of in in the social housing sector and have now kind of moved on to to, to start something new, and um, hearing their kind of slightly more open reflections on on things are, are always fascinating. Uh, you've written a great article uh, recently called "We Cannot Redo the Past, but We Can Learn from It." What well, what would be some of the big things you've learned from that thirty years in?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, the housing associations are somewhat failing at the moment. They're failing. The tenants think that. The regulator and the government think that. The press think that. Um, It's impossible, I think, in that situation to sit there and going, hey, we're doing a great job. We're wonderful. I mean, we were just talking about some of the positives, and there is a lot of positives happening, but we're we're not doing well enough. I mean, we're not satisfying the demand, that's an obvious thing, but even so we are not achieving what we can or what we should. So that is the soul searching for me. I mean, uh, it's very easy to turn around and say it's the wrong people or, you know, they... I have met a lot of people who think that the sector is run by idiots. And I so think that is unfair. It, the people I know are bright dedicated motivated you know they put the time and energy and they're not antagonistic to tenants and you know hate them or anything like that they're they, they're good people with good values so it's something systemic it's not a personal thing it's not that they're paid too much or too little it's not that they're too commercial or too little it's it's the systemic problems so being outside it enables me to say from my point of view what i think those systemic problems are so that's really what i tried to address and for me i think the house condition is the heart of it that homes that are declining are very difficult to keep in good condition and i think we've moved a long way away from the sort of kathy come home put a roof over people's head patronizing you know, deserving poor stuff to an expectation that social tenants are equal citizens and have the right to decent housing. And it's as simple as that. And so my first point would be, you know, how good is this stock? And I've seen on a number of websites, oh, we're 99% compliant with the decent home standard. Well, that is not good enough. It sounds pretty good, a decent home, but actually It is a tick box exercise that some of the elements of the home are in haven't don't need immediate repair. But if you go around and look at a home that is DHS compliant, it doesn't necessarily suitable for a home. And I think we don't know the scale of the problem. My guess is it's about a quarter of the homes don't meet a modern decent home standard. Um, and you know, if we ask tenants themselves, we made five and it's more than a quarter of the homes are not satisfactory for people, but we should do the work. And the fact the sector doesn't say to government, a quarter of our stock needs a major upgrade, or, you know, we have a backlog of repairs. We need to talk about it or tenant dissatisfaction comes often from the quality of the home and the immediate environment. Let's, let's get that out in the open. And I certainly feel when I was doing the job, I wasn't prepared to say that because the regulator would have been on my back. Oh, a quarter of your arms are undecent. You know, let's have some regulatory action. So, I mean, I don't, I think you have to be careful what you say, unfortunately. So that would be one thing. I think if we could in, improve the stock and upgrade the stock, that would help a lot. I think the tenant voice is very important and it's part of the same story, but it's not the way that we've been doing it for years, which is like insisting tenants fit into our governance structure. You know, we'll set some committees and you can come and we want to consult you on everything under the sun. I think it starts with empowering the tenant in their home. And that means listening to what they think about it and starting there. And you know, they may throw up all sorts of problems that we find very hard to to sort out, but on the other hand, let's at least elaborate what they are. Let's get it out in the open, why they hate us or why they to give us three out of 10 or why they go on TripAdvisor or whatever it's called, you know, and and say what they think of us. So I think we need a dialogue with every single householder. So that would be two. And then the third bugbear for me is is data and technology in general. Um, a lot of HAs haven't got great technology. They've been sold old fashioned systems that have not, have been under in. They lock your own data away and don't really allow you to use it, except through an expensive relationship with them. And, uh, people are fed up with that. Um, new technology, the more cloud based, and cloud native systems are better. But they're also pretty expensive. And why housing associations then get charity rates, I do not know. And it's an outrage and it's a campaign for another day. But like with the traditional providers, it's our data, but we don't have full access to it. And with the more modern ones, they're overcharging us and everyone sees us as a cash cow. So I think that's a an inherent problem. But on top of that is, you know, decades of data that is not necessarily accurate. Is not even necessarily compliant. Is not being used to make decisions with. So that's that was my reflection on the sort of today's problem, which is the lack of happiness with the with the sector. What three things, four things could we do that would turn the dial? And that's that's where I ended up. And sort of bringing that all together, the sector's got to work together. I mean, in my opinion. 1,500 housing associations is way too many, and it, it works against uh, collaboration. People go, oh, you know, mergers aren't the answer. Of course, mergers aren't the answer, but nor is just keeping 1,500 housing associations in existence just because of history. It It is very inefficient, very inefficient in terms of ideas, resources, people, technology, um, and so, you know, working together in much bigger groups and sharing ideas, technology, innovation, that, that would move the dial as well. So it's like, what, what can we do? I mean, the obvious thing to do is ask the government for money, and I'm not averse to that. You know, we should always be asking for money, but if, if it doesn't come, you can't just sit there and say, well, we'll just carry on without the money. You have to find other ways. And so I was trying to create ways that could be
0: picking up on that technology point, Kate, because some of the things you've just talked about, your reflections, technology absolutely could play a role within that. Tools weren't always there to solve some of those things you talked about. And you've always struck me as an early adopter. You were one of the first, we we're looking back early, you know, back to sort 2011, 2012, you were one of the first senior leaders using social media. You were one of the first senior leaders to be blogging. You were certainly first CEO and only CEO, I think to be blogging about fashion, which is a bit <laughs> unusual for the housing world. But then I saw on, on your website that in 2023, you studied at Stanford in Palo Alto to broaden your technology e- expertise. What prompted that and what did you learn?
1: Yeah, so that's really uh, fascinating. I mean, um, I did ask Notting Hill Genesis when I left whether they would pay for a course for me and generously they said yes and so i had to think about what what would help me for my future career and that course appealed a great deal um obviously it meant going to another country and i think there's a lot to be said for just going to another country and absorbing stuff also and i'd forgotten about it at the time but i had a very old friend from university who was is, who is now um a very rich tech entrepreneur and um, he lives in Palo Alto and um, I got in touch with him. I said, I'm coming to do a course. And he said, well, come and see me, come and stay. And I had a fantastic 24 hours with him as well, which was like so worth it. Even if I'd only done that, um, if that was worth it, Uh, he gave me a lot of confidence and encouragement because I was talking about working more in the tech sphere. And I had the anxiety, which anybody would have, which is why I was on the course. You know, do I know enough? Do I know enough? And he, he said to me, yeah, you know, enough. And actually your skills in business in management in finance, in communications, you know, the fact, you know, your world and business inside out, that is so valuable. A lot of people in the tech world know technology and they can't marry it up with the reality. So. You know, in a way, you're in a unique position. So if you can know enough about tech, you can uh, make your career in this. And that was very reassuring. The course itself, there were a lot of people on it, maybe 45 people from all over the world. And again, massive learning just from being with people, like the person in charge of AI at Google was there. Uh, There were five people from South Korea, from some well-known tech companies there, there were five people from Saudi Arabia, it's a country tackling problems with a completely different mindset. Uh, but then also Australia, uh, uh, Portugal, I mean, just the whole world, Egypt, I mean, um, so to be with a group intensively and meeting them and talking, that was fantastic. And I now have like a group of people who I work with and support me and help me in other countries and i hopefully give them some support and encouragement as well um but just opening your mind i mean you one of the, the thoughts behind i know your work in innovation pool and bronford's sort of concept it, it's part of your dna i think and also this podcast uh you know just getting voices from outside the sector it just keeps you thinking and freshens you up and for me one of the worst things about lockdown and COVID was that social isolation from the rest of the world, even going on holidays to a place, you know, you are thinking about housing and how you can apply this to your real world. And I really miss that sort of internationalism. So that was that was a very cool experience. I'm very grateful for Notting Hill and it just propels me into a different sphere of thinking.
0: And that kind of, that interconnectedness you've just kind of described essentially, that is Perfectly achievable now on a global scale reflects completely on what you were saying about the housing sector itself and its sometimes the inability to collaborate. so uh, some really important points there.
2: Yeah. Um, so if we move in on a bit to your white paper, um, that's uh, highly recommended anyone interested uh, have a read. As part of that, you, you interviewed I think about 25 different people um, as part of your research. How far did you get a kind of consistent problem definition of what it is that we need to fix in in social housing? It's
1: it's a really interesting question. I mean, I didn't do it scientifically. I just said I was going to do it and people got in touch and I interviewed whoever got in touch with me. And, of course, Paul was one, very grateful for his time. And I talked to housing associations. I talked to suppliers to the housing association, talked to various other type of people. So there was a huge consistency. I mean, in terms of what the problems were, I would say it was almost 100% agreement on. On the solutions, if I'm really honest, a lot of people didn't know what the solutions were. Or, and this is me being rather critical, they were too focused on small things. Like, we need the internet of things, for example. I just mentioned that because it's not that there's anything wrong with internet things, but that's not going to solve anything. You know, th- this concept for me is you need to go upstream to the cause of the problem, the bigger picture, and we can, f- let's fix some big things. If you have IoT or not, is like your choice at that point, you know. And also I people to envisage the future. And again, I didn't get a lot there. So I suppose my contribution has been that second half, not the the elaboration of problems was a lot of a lot of thinking, but this sort of slight boldness that I brought to it or not not being overwhelmed. I mean, I, I absolutely got that sense of overwhelm from people who are engaged in doing the work. They almost can't think it's like snow blindness. And I've experienced it myself, just desperate busyness, tiredness, uh spinning plates, putting out fires, you know, it, it is It is a relentless job and I think of myself as very resilient, very well organized, you know, and, and I felt that sense that it's like an emotional overload. Did you get a sense that people were
2: trying to think, reaching out, trying to think of what solutions might be or were were they so subsumed by, by the the data state?
1: I mean, a lot of people said we need better technology. We need all the data in one place. We need database decision-making. You know, that that level of, of decision-making was quite good. Some people said we needed more regulation, some said we needed less, you know, but it was, I don't think it was a holistic answer because why, you know, they're not paid to do that most of the time. I mean, it's a chief executive's prerogative um, mm-hmm. with the board, really, to be the person who's trying to look ahead three, five, 10 years, an understanding of all the departments you know, I've talked to finance directors, I've talked to development, you know, people have got their own job. but I think it's just reflection is the word I think I'm searching for. If you're busy, you don't necessarily spend any time reflecting what has actually happened today. What's the significance of this? How can I learn from it? What, what was really going on? Are people in denial here? Are they avoiding something? Is the thing that's most important being shut out of the discussion are we fearful of tenants are we fearful of regulators is dealing with money frightening us and therefore some up our behavior you know you need just sort of psychological insight into what's happening in the dynamics in an organization how the group is working and so on and i think time to do that sort of work is is in short supply and it it it's sort of like i don't want to go there i don't want to open that Pandora's box because some of that stuff questions my own competence and whether we're doing a good job, you know.
0: Year one, you talk about corporate collaboration. You've mentioned that a couple of occasions already. I'm not convinced, as you don't appear to be, that we've had a great track record of collaboration. Or even moving out of internal silos, you mentioned behaviour. What needs to change about our behaviour?
1: It is really, it's really difficult. Um, Some of my closest friends running housing associations, well say, you know, we just feel we want the right to go it alone and do, do our thing. Because if we wait for the rest of the sector, we'll never get anything done. That's the sort of feeling. And I, I've had that feeling, so I know it's, it's right. You know, I mean, you talk about early adopter, It sometimes you think, well, why should I wait for the whole sector to wake up to technology? We'll just go and do it. You know, we'll build it or whatever. Um, that's completely understandable, but. It makes the sector pretty sluggish and it makes it very wasteful. Um, now the thing is, could the sector just on its own volition come together and do something? I've seen a few occasions of that. I mean, I do think that better social housing review is quite a good, you know, piece of work. I, I'm in con- concert with a lot of, of what's said there, but who's going to make it happen? I mean, I. admire the national housing federation is going to try and make it happen but it has no locus. it has no power over housing associations. so you get adopters and not adopters that's why i end up saying if the regulator doesn't demand it it won't happen and i hate saying that in a way because i love the idea of being control of your own destiny but the only alternative to getting the regulator to do it is a sector to work together so is the fear of the regulator And the desire to make the change strong enough for people to do it, to, to feel driven, to collaborate, it's an open question. You know, the, the, I don't think the mood music is very positive about HAs. even if we are going to get another government. Um, it's not like someone's really going to help us. So question, you know, is the sector going to control its own destiny? In which case it's going to have to get over the problem of collaboration, or is it going to be done to it? And it could be done to it in a positive way or a negative way. And the subject has the ability to influence how it's regulated, but I don't see it in doing that. You know, I, I feel if we went to the regulator and said, look, this is how we want to be regulated. You talk about co-regulation. This is how we would like to look at the future. New government, new agenda. Let's look at regulation from the ground up. I mean, there is resistance to regulation, people hate it and frightened of it, but would the sector be as hot on diversity if the regulator hadn't insisted on it? Would the sector be at all concerned about tenant voice and getting tenants on boards if the regulator hadn't required it, you know, and on and on and on. I can think of lots of things which are generally positive that the regulator flagged up and everybody's having to do it. And of course, some people wanted to do it and we were doing it anyway, but the sector as a whole wouldn't have done it without being obliged to do it. So it can, that for me, the regulator can be a force for good and not good. And do we try to influence it?
0: John's next question is going to allude to some of that because it's interesting because you say about regulation, you know, some of the high, most tightly regulated industries have seen huge innovation. So there is an absolute, you know, symbiotic relationship there between kind of regulation and innovation
2: yes and i think that section in your white paper is is really powerful that where you catalog that nearly all the major changes that have affected our sector have been done to us um and they've been profound you know they've set us on a different course as a whole sector haven't they and so yeah that kind of wake up call now the change is going to come do we Do we own it and and help shape it? Or do we sit back and wait for someone to tell us what it's got to be? So yeah, so as Paul just said, there's a section in, in, in the white paper, well, quite a big section about data. So I'll just read something that you, you wrote, um, data is both the greatest problem currently facing housing associations, but also the greatest opportunity that could be the game changer if we get it right. So you talk about the, the finance sector and how they created kind of open banking and really transformed it. Um what what does that what might that look like if you read across to, to social housing? You know, what 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 could the future be?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I probably haven't thought about it enough. I just know that in the in the senior management team, you're trying to make decisions every day and make the right decisions and I know for a fact that often you go on your experience instinct and whatever data you can find, yeah, but on a daily basis, I had a question that no one could answer, you know, like, for for example, how many of our outstanding fire safety actions are to do with things that tenants need to do? They couldn't just tell me the answer. They could get the answer, but it might be a few days, yeah, or it might be. It can be a few weeks. And so you hesitate to ask a question like that because it's going to be several hours work for somebody who's already quite busy, but you can't really run an organization without having those sorts of questions. I mean, that's a sort of very random one, but there are some very serious questions you can ask, you know, um, and you don't get answers. So um, we don't unlike many private sector organizations that i've worked with who have access to good data on a daily basis and and use it i mean the the amount of kind of questioning of financial and performance data that goes on in most private sector organizations to squeeze out profit basically that's why they're doing it to increase profit or squeeze out profit to make people more productive to get better margins whatever it is they are working that data to to show trends for how to grow the business. Housing associations don't do very much of that. And it could really raise their game. You could see where the waste is. I mean, another very good question is, show me all the homes that we do more than six repairs a year and what are we going to do about that? Because that's an awful lot of disruption to a tenant's life as we're doing six repairs a year or more. You've got some 20, 30, 40 repairs come out, you know? What the hell is happening? Let's, let's get to the bottom of it. So people probably don't ask the question because they can't get the answer, but also if they get the answer, there's a responsibility to do something about it. So that's the sort of way the problem presents itself, but technology, and I know it exists, could do a lot of this already. You know, Power BI, I don't want to particularly advertise it, but it's fantastically powerful when used to answer day-to-day questions, combine it with AI. And you can just make it into something that any other manager can use. Just ask the questions like I just asked. I mean, it was my prerogative as chief executive, I've more of my questions answered, but every manager, you know, who's my best performer at getting rents in? Who's, who's the worst, you know, why let's let let let's have some data instead of managing people on the base, if we like them or let's manage them on what they achieve and what they're struggling with.
2: We're nodding away here. because. Well, every day, question comes up, and allegedly we can't answer it because we can't work data, or we can't organise the data in a, in a way to answer a kind of slightly more complex question that links two or three data points together. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Do you think? Do you think we would have the bravery to move? You you mentioned open banking because you know. We've talked about collaboration. Is that one of those things that you feel would have to be something that the regulator would really need to push? Yeah,
1: because I think the regulator would benefit. And I think the tenants would absolutely benefit all tenants. And, you know, the te- the housing association say, Well, we wanna control our own, you know, we don't want to collaborate, we wanna do our own thing. My point would be, you know, does it benefit your tenants, that attitude? Does it benefit your tenants? What what values is adding to their experience? And the answer is none. So could you just get the mindset that you're willing to do things because it will benefit tenants? You know, anything that benefits the, the customer group has got to be worth people doing despite their organizational barriers.
0: I think it's that kind of, you know, um, even what you said of the thing where you know, tenants, residents will cycle through a number of homes as well that are not specific necessarily to one landlord. And that's one point there as well. So it's like you say, that kind of go it alone thing is selfish in one respect.
1: Exactly, exactly. And it's sort of anti-competitive as well. Uh, I mean, truly, the regulator exists, in my opinion, as a super consumer. You know, they they are actually representing the tenants as a whole. I mean, it doesn't feel like that, and I don't think they even necessarily think like that, but that's sort of the role that they're playing in a sector that does not is not a commercial sector. So that's why regulation is very important because, because competition isn't there. As you say, with the banks, it was really mis-selling and, and bad practice that led the regulator to insist on the open data to empower the consumer. Now, for me, if the regulator insisted on open data to empower the consumer, we would see a lot of positive change in the sector and there would be nowhere to hide. Uh, But at first, the story would be worse than the story is now, as everything would be laid out, the dirty washing would be being done in in the stream. You know, you would see what, what was happening. But it would be it would be a driver for improvement for for sure, and I think there's a lot to be said for the open data idea, and that's why um, you know I got involved with a few colleagues in trying to promote it.
0: But if you you know the, the, that example is perfect, Kay, because if you just think of the way innovation has affected the way we bank and and the transparency and the ability for us to kind of switch, for us to move, all of those things have happened as a result of that. The, the, the kind of the consumer, the consumer experience is transformed, you know, where it was even just a few years ago. Um, just wrapping up on the kind of the reports and the white paper, give us your year six vision. What, what, what would success look like to you?
1: I think it would be that we had cracked the data and technology problem. I mean, that would be That would be wonderful. The the culture that is associated working in a different way also needs to change. The tenant experience would would definitely change if we adopted those technological changes. Um, I mean, I just think social housing will be able to hold its head up and it would be seen as a good sector and a a really valuable thing. Um, And I think we would be more likely to get government money going into building new homes, actually. If we could seen as managing really well the ones we already had, and if tenants were advocates for us, you know, tenants really had a say in their own home and would sort of treat it like a homeowner rather than as a whatever, you know, that the, they have the rights of a homeowner and they have the insights of a homeowner and they have the say of a homeowner. You no, know, it would, they'd be out there saying, give these people more money, they're doing a great job. And... You know, we wouldn't have to have expensive PR people to write these positive news stories, which are always a big con, anyway, aren't they? I mean, they're just, everybody sees through them. And, and of course it's lovely when you open new, new buildings and I've been there and I love it as well, but you know, real positive progress, we should be celebrating it in, you know, we need two or three years to get our act together. And then we can start celebrating successful thinking in a real sense.
2: Okay, last question for me is, um, I had a long telephone conversation with you uh, years ago when we were kind of first developing neighborhood coaching. You were very generous with your time and and, uh, honesty. Um, You subsequently said, this wasn't a direct quote from you, but someone at Notting Hill said that the problem was we didn't trust our tenants and they didn't trust us. And uh, probably a week doesn't go by that I don't repeat that statement because it feels such a important, uh, honest statement. It seems as relevant today for the sector as it did those years ago. How do we become organisations worthy of trust?
1: Yeah, it was a a housing officer who said it, and it it rang true with me, John, so I I remembered it and repeated it, and I still do, because I mean, there was so much tension in the relationship where they um, contractor said, Oh, you know, I turned up and the tenant wasn't here. And the I said, it wasn't, you never know, turned up. And then, you know, they, there's like everyone gets head lying, they're like, you know, and it was just like, come on, let's all try and get on the same page. Because if we're all pushing the blame around, it's not it's not gonna work. And if we said to the tenant, Well, we'll fix this in twenty four hours or ten days and we didn't, you know, they would not believe a thing we said ever again. And I think that breakdown of trust is there. I think quite a lot of housing staff are suspicious of tenants and don't really trust them and that needs breaking down and it needs to be a relationship of, of equals, um, so the model we adopted and I know Bronford did your, in a similar version of the same thing was where human interaction became a key part of what you did. Now, if I was designed, this was, I don't know, more than 10 years ago, I think, um, Looking at it now, I would say I relied on human interaction because the systems were quite poor. I couldn't rely on saying that a repair ordered will be a repair done. I couldn't rely on, uh, you know, um, invoice being raised, invoice being paid. I couldn't rely on letter going out, letter being received, you know, none of that was completely reliable. So. The housing officer was there to make sure that the human contact and human communication kept going, whatever was happening and could explain, well, that's actually not going to happen this week. And therefore we need to tell you and make another erasure. So it was a way, it was a kind of management of failure to some extent. I mean, this was the, one of the purposes it was also to try and build trust and change the relationship and so on, but it was also to cover the problems. Now I would say today. Self-serve should be the norm for most people. I think I've seen really good self-serve people, social tenants are using, you know, eBay and Amazon and whatever else. Uh, you know, you can order McDonald's online. Every, every, everybody's doing everything, uh, self-serve now. So I think most of our tenants can self-serve if the technology is good enough. And if there's always an opportunity for a human to come in, if it fails. And so I would rearrange it around great technology with the the housing management staff available, present, going to the home at least once a year to meet the tenant, but not necessarily all the time being the intermediary. I, I would have a different model now, but the, the still the basic idea that you need to build trust between the organization and the people that it serves, yes. And let's go a bit further, trust between the board and the senior team. Trust between the senior team and the staff. Trust between the staff and each other. You know, trust is the, the thing that, that makes an organisation effective.
0: It's a final, final question. So if we said, Kate hey, Davis, commander of the British Empire, we grant you supreme omnipotent powers over the housing sector, what would you change? And it can be really profound, it can be petty.
1: I think the place to go would probably be the political sphere, because at the political sphere, you can make really big decisions on behalf of the country as a whole, and they are democratically elected, so they have a mandate to do do stuff. So I think I would try at the political level to prioritize housing and make it a really important part of the economy. I mean, on a par with health and education, which I also happen to think are very important. Uh, and, and treasury and the economy and so on or in, uh, uh, you know, internationalism and foreign affairs. Yes. So I would have it as one of the big, the big organization of state, but I would have it working collaboratively. I would not have these silos in government. I would have, have it, and I would urge them to move away completely from small initiatives and dazzling press releases and ask them to create a plan for the country and the economy that is going to benefit more people more of the time with, with, with a much better agenda, um, that looks at equality, uh, looks at international relationships, looks at health, looks at training and education and housing in a holistic way. So I suppose that's how I would approach it. And, uh, you know, people thought I said to me, okay, you should go into politics. You know, you're a natural politician. And I'm not really, actually. Um, but one of the missions is I said, well, I would not accept teacher if I was the prime minister because being a backbench MP is a lot of, lot of hard work and, you know, not you don't have that much influence. So I think, you know, I am interested in the big picture, so I would really try and do that. Putting that aside, if I was a modern HA chief executive taking up a role now for the first time, preferably somebody in their late twenties or thirties with a good experience of life, perhaps someone with several languages, perhaps someone who's worked in another country, perhaps people, you know, with, with some experience, you know, outside the sector with very strong tech skills. That person, I would say, you know, my white paper is a bit of a blueprint. And I, that's what I would do. You know, I would try and do it that way. I would try and get the board, the tenants, the staff to, to adopt that and, um, uh, try it.
0: That's absolutely perfect, Kate. You know, it's been great to have you on, you're an inspiration. I think that, that phrase about the management of failure and how much of what we actually do is actually the management of failure is something that's really kind of resonates and, as you've laid out, we have the opportunity to um to, to fix it, but we need to be bold and it need to think over a, a, a longer term. Thank you so much. If well we'll obviously link to the white paper within um within the show notes. But if people want to keep up track of you up to what you're doing with your, your new organisation, how do they follow you?
1: Yeah, I mean I have got a website, Winner uh, dot limited, um it's not it's not massively impressive. But it has got my main articles on there. I, I, you know, I'm happy to talk to people, um, work with people, work for people. Um, I'm open, you know, to suggestion. Um, and I'm not very siloed, you know, I'm doing a number of things at the moment and I'm keen keen to do more. I just wanted to say though that I uh I really appreciate your your support and friendship, Paul and and John taking, you know, soundings from Hill Genesis and being so sort of keen to say that you'd learn from it because, you know, um, that means a lot, it means a lot to me. And, um, I just think you are doing a good job for the sector as a whole, not just for Bromford and some of what Bromford has done has been really innovative and really, really exciting. I think the fact that you've linked repairs improvement to your recent, uh, money raise is, is innovative and very, very exciting. Um. You know, you're you're a great organization, and the fact that all is paid to do some thinking and to do connecting and do networking, and you know that's pretty progressive. And uh, and it is it's a wonderful resource to have. So I wanted to say, you know, well done to you, and it's been an absolute pleasure to be on your um, podcast today. I always feel bad about talking so much, but I guess that's what what's of a podcast.
0: Hey, that's the whole that's the whole point. Kate. Hey, uh, and also we need to do more of. You know, it's kind of you know thinking and talking and just connecting is actually that would get us out of some of the things that you've spoken about today if we did a little bit more of it um rather than or will go back to spending a lot of time on the management of failure so thank you kate again and to our listeners uh thank you for listening and can you remember to subscribe like set an alert wherever you're listening please share with others we're trying to build up a, a movement and some momentum picking you know, on the things that kate's talked about about collaboration These are really important conversations and we need to share them more widely. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.
1: Thank you.